gekommen bei Sustain? Wer sind wir? Woher sind wir gekommen? Wohin gehen wir? That's right. Today we'll be talking in German because we are having our podcast at FOSS Backstage. FOSS Backstage is a wonderful conference that focuses on open source sustainability. It is held every year in Berlin. This year it happened on March 17th and 18th. It is hosted by the wonderful Plain Sports. And I had the opportunity of attending virtually and interviewing attendees who were there in person. We focused on software sustainability, what they hope to find in FOSS Backstage, and all the normal good stuff. So without any further ado, let's get to our guest. I'm joined today by Cornelius Schumacher. Cornelius, it is great to have you on here. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I'm glad you're doing well. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So I was looking up, who is this Cornelius Schumacher anyway? And then I found that you are one of the few guests Wikipedia profile. Thank you very much. That makes it a whole <laughs> lot easier for me. As I was reading it, I came across this thing that says in 2009, which was, yeah, like 14 years ago, you analyzed and figured out that the KDE software package LOC would cost around $175 million to make in dollars from 2009, which was a while ago before inflation. That's a lot of money. Open source is clearly something that is very much worth investing in. It is a huge market multiplier. I'm curious, looking back at that figure and looking back at the early analysis where you were trying to fight off people who were saying, what is open source? Is it even worth money? What is your view on it now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess I'm around for a long time. So that's what gets you a Wikipedia page. If you <laughs> do it for long enough, somebody will know. That's it. fair. And uh, I actually started already uh, many years uh, before that. And in some way, it's a fun exercise to do this calculation. I mean, all this volunteer work which goes into projects, what, what is this worth? And in, in this case, if you're talking about the KDE, the KDE community is mostly a volunteer community. And I think these lines of code were almost all written by people who really did that because of their passion and because they just wanted to have this desktop and they, they wanted to create this big new thing running yeah. open source on everywhere so they could use it. So then the question, of course, is this a meaningful number? And is it a, is it a monetary value you get there? I mean, are there happiness about having the software you really want because you can do it yourself? I mean, that, that's something which is hard to capture in money. If I look on these kind of considerations now, I'm thinking about two things. One is It's obvious that there's huge value in open source, just if you look at where it is, because it's everywhere. So all companies are using it. If you would switch off all open source software, we would not be able to talk to each other anymore. <laughs> so it's obvious that there's a very, very clear value in that. It's hard to quantify that, of course. I mean, what is it worth? But on the other hand, I also see some studies where actually people put a lot of research into what is the money. So for example, the study which was done by the Forum Open Source, they came up with probably better numbers than I did back then <laughs> about what is the open source economy worth in, in this yep. case in Europe. And uh, there's some quite impressive numbers there. So They did. I don't remember them at the top of my head, but Astor Noonberg's work is fantastic with OFE. Yeah. It's super interesting looking at like, how do we quantify open source? It's been really important taking those numbers, particularly looking at, say, EU policy towards having open source program offices. And also things like the German fund that's being started right now to try and actually figure out digital sovereignty, of which they're donating $10 million to basically work on. Although we're hoping to get that number finalized, hasn't been finalized yet. 
working on understanding how do we understand digital infrastructure and critical infrastructure for German open source. Really, really fascinating work. And I think it's been pioneered and trailblazed by people like you doing this for 15 years. Thank you for being here so long. You're not <laughs> the only one, by the way, there are others. What are you doing now? So at the moment, my main job is working for Deutsche Bahn, the German railway company, and my title there is Open Source Steward. In other companies, you would call that an open source program office. So I'm working for the IT daughter, DB Sistel, and I'm helping teams to use open source software. I'm helping teams to contribute to open source software and generally supporting the idea of open source in this, this area as well. It's for me actually a pretty fascinating job because, uh, I mean, I, I'm coming from the production side of open source. So I have worked yeah. in open source communities writing code. I worked for Linux distribution for many, many years, kind of already a little bit more downstream. And now I'm working for a company which is primarily a user of open source software. So it's really interesting to look at yeah, this whole big game and business of open source from these different perspectives. and. The problems when using open source are quite different from the problems you have in producing open source. And sometimes I think it would be good if there would be more understanding on both sides <laughs> that you realize, yeah, people have special needs when they develop software, but also they have special needs when, when they use open source software. And sometimes there's just a gap in communication there. So this is part of what I'm working. <laughs> I love that. I think it's really great. I think because I'm reading Lord of the Rings right now and we're one week away from the Gondorian New Year, when you say steward, I think of Denethor wearing his chainmail and sword because he doesn't want to never not feel like he's a soldier as well. And for you being a developer and now being a steward and Ospo manager, whatever you want to call it, you see both sides so well as well. Obviously, you don't want to be Denethor. That guy burned up in all flame. But <laughs> what I really like is that you have that perspective. So given that, looking at FOSS backstage today, I'm curious what you think has matured in the open source space in the past like three to five years that wasn't there before. What's different now, given the amount of perspective you have than used to be? One of my impressions was that there is much more talk about money than before. So in different ways, I mean, in terms of how to get funding or how to run a business or what are open source business models. And so... This also reflects my experience that it's open source is not this niche thing which is done by volunteers who are doing it in their spare time, but it's a full-blown business and there is a lot of money on the table there. And open source is definitely not the free thing there anymore where you talk um, about volunteer time. I hope that this volunteer part stays intact and that they have still the, the people who are doing it because it's their passion and because they want the freedom. and. They want to be able to tinker with their own software and so on. So I hope that this stays also a strong force in, in the open source community. But I think the opportunities to get funding, um, the opportunities to run successful businesses on top of open source models, I think that's something which is, yeah, there's, there's more of, of that. The other thing I also noticed is that there is more awareness about how to do things properly in open source. There's more structure in how you deal with that as a company. There's more structure in how communities are organized. There are more organizations who are asking questions about what is the right way to set up governance for an open source project and, and so on. So a lot of things which 
I think in the past were done more in an ad hoc way and dominated by individual people and, and strong opinions and good results. I mean, <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't be here. But also sometimes with the disastrous results. I mean, we've also seen all the fights in the open source community, which probably today wouldn't happen in the same way. So I think this way, be it um, yeah, being aware of what an OSPO does and, and being able to communicate that or also formulating what inner source is in a way that, that you can explain it to people within a company and also more structured communities, uh, more mature foundations. There are so many foundations these days, uh, it's hard to, get, <laughs> to really get an overview, but they're all doing good work. And I'm sometimes surprised how mature areas of open source I'm not so familiar with are when I'm having a closer look and I see, okay, there's mm. just so much knowledge now around, which helps to make this more professional. I think that's certainly a tendency that the whole open source world has gotten quite a bit more professional over the years. I think there's a lot more work for us to do. We have definitely matured. There is, has been a maturation process. There is more structure now. Terms like Ospos are more familiar. And yes, there is more money than how that influences things is kind of up in the air. I know there's some initial research on how money influences volunteerism in open source. For instance, Yana Galos did some good work there. And I'm interested to see how that grows. I think from your perspective, I'm curious, because this is really great. And you're matching a lot of the things that I've been thinking for a while. Which is good. Who doesn't want someone else to agree with them? But what I'm interested <laughs> in is where do you think we can improve? What do you think we can do better? Not just, a, you know, Deutsche Bahn in Germany, but like in open source in general. I asked the question to somebody basically in the way, if you could start an open source project and you had all the resources of the world, what would you do? And we talked about that and the result actually was it's really, really, really hard to come up with a new open source project because for everything you can think of, there already is one. And, and you look at it and, oh, there, there are five people working for 10 years on this very, very niche application to create something. So I certainly wouldn't improve starting more open source projects. And I think what could help is maybe bringing these open source projects better together, maybe come up with... Uh, common values. Uh, I mean, the open source community sometimes is also famous for the debates and the bike shedding, with, which is happening there. And, and I think we have improved in many ways that, for example, today, a code of conduct is pretty natural and there's no debate about being respectful and so on is, is the right thing to do. But sometimes I think I like choice. I like the variety, but I would also like to see that we are working together on the things which are important. There are so many problems in the world which have to be solved. That's probably sometimes not to write another IRC client or what the best editor is or whatever. I mean, these debates are fun, but there are big problems in the world we can solve in open source. I think if employed in the right way, it can really make a difference there. And we are not there yet. I think that's something we haven't really learned yet. I think companies have figured out how to benefit from open source in a good way. So this is, I think, understood. But putting software to good use for maybe society in general, that's not as well understood yet. I mean, for me, it's pretty obvious. BIM, it's the best editor. So end of story. Uh, <laughs> no, this is great. I really appreciate your perspective. I want to get into stuff more. Unfortunately, I can't. So Cornelius, I know that you have a blog. It's uh, available online. It's blog.cornelius-schumacher. That's S. C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R dot D-E. Is there any other online link or website or Twitter profile or Mastodon instance or Federated, whatever that you would like to point to today? 
Yeah, I'm not blogging as often as I want to, so that's not the most recent material. So you will find me on Twitter, you will find me on, on GitHub. I think in general, if you Google my name, you will find the right things. Excellent. Thank you so much, Cornelius. I really appreciated your time. Thank you. Today, I am talking to Yadira Sanchez Benitez, which I probably mispronounced. You did that great. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. And Yadira, <laughs> you are both in the criminology and human-centered AI doctoral student at the Faculty yes. of Social Sciences over in UK. Yes, that's right. But you're also a fellow at the SSI, the Software Sustainability Institute. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So I have so many questions just right off the bat. How do you describe what you do to people? Can you give me the pitch? Yeah, sure. I can try. So I do love doing a lot of organizing around demystifying technologies, for example, to communities, especially communities that have been left out of the mainstream way of making technologies. So I guess I'm an organizer. So I organize kind of like information open to the public on how to domestify technologies. I'm also a researcher. So yes, doing my PhD right now. I'm a software developer, so I love doing software and sometimes hardware just for fun with friends. <laughs> that is awesome. Okay, so you're a demystifying software to marginalized communities. We always need more of that. I'm confused or interested what that has to do with criminology and human-centered AI. Can you talk a bit about that? So criminology kind of comes in on the background of social harms. So a lot of the technologies that we see today have been built with a certain mindset and a certain purpose that excludes a lot of communities. So criminology in this way kind of challenges the ways that these technologies have been created by saying that there is a social harm happening. So this social harm kind of manifests in many ways. One of them is these communities cannot be a part of the technology making process. And if they can be a part of the technology making process, what does that entail? How are they actually being taken part actively or non-actively? And if they're not taking part, how are they affecting their communities? So I do a lot of organizing on surveillance technologies and how they affect communities, especially racialized communities in the UK or the US to a lesser extent, but also very obvious ways. These technologies are being used in countries like Mexico, where I am from, or Latin America, but there's definitely more of a thin line of seeing how they are being affecting communities because of the role of who is racialized and who isn't. So that's where criminology comes in. And human-centered AI is, okay, how can we make sure that we not only include, but actually actively center these communities? So in a way, it's also saying, I'm not going to be the one bringing you in this process. It's more, what is it that you need from the institutions in these countries so that you can do your own technology on your own terms, which also takes you to how to make sovereign technologies so that they're autonomous to them. I love that. There's so much I want to delve into. I think the main thing I want to ask, or at least the thing I feel like needs to be asked first, is what 
structures have we built into open source, which are actively excluding marginalized communities? And how can we build a better open source ecosystem going forward that's more sustainable, inclusive, and diverse? And that's a very broad question. So sorry for asking you such a huge one. So there is actually, I guess it's kind of like a philosophy that comes from a lot of Latin American indigenous ways of thinking. And this is actually being coined by a famous activist in Mexico. So she coined the term techologies. So instead of technologies, she came up with this term techologies, which comes from the indigenous language Nahuatl, techio, which basically means collective work. And it has been embraced by many communities in Mexico and Latin America. So how this philosophy embraces open source is open source is great. And all the principles that works on, which is accessibility, inclusivity, but also it kind of centers communitarian ways of making this. So again, it's going back to instead of institutions, research institutions, software companies, and so on, doing these open source steps, it kind of begs the question of how can communities be the ones that actually draw the steps that have to be done for their knowledge to be included, not only included, but actually actively participating. So in a way, it's basically saying, making technology for us by us. I like that a lot. I love the fact that Nahuatl is mentioned. It's very rare that I get to hear that language be mentioned. So that makes me very, very happy. This is the source of my favorite compound word, chocoholic. It's from Nahuatl and Arabic. Neither here nor there. There's also really interesting work going on. I know in Mexico on communitarian work. So for instance, there's a group of researchers working on digital cooperatives, which is funded by Sloan, Ford, and the like on the digital infrastructures community called Digital Infrastructures called Digital Infrastructures.fund. There's also cool work there going on about how indigenous communities use open source tech. So Navira Lemos and Bruno Savera, I think in Brazil, are doing work on that, which is really exciting. A lot of great work. So again, I want to talk about a lot of stuff. I think the, the follow-on question I have for you is thinking about communitarian approaches towards code. And you mentioned it's not about research institutions. It's not about large software. But it's so funny for me to hear that because you're a fellow at the Software Sustainability Institute, which is a major research institution in the UK. <laughs> so how does that work for you? Why are you in institutions saying don't make software from institutions? I do find myself always at the crossroads because there's always a crossover, right? So if we think about like this, like the social structures that we have in place right now, this is how most of the things work. So if you're, let's say, in the global north, as like people say or refer to Europe or, or the yep. United States, and you come from the global south, it's always kind of not choosing, but also kind of in a way, redistributing knowledge and resources. So for me, I see it as, okay, ultimately these are the institutions that have power and that how do we make sure also that this power is redistributed in a way that reaches other communities. So I'm not saying either that these communities need this, by all means, of course not, because they are empowered already in their own terms. So I'm speaking from my community, so... All communities also have completely different ways of making technology, of reaching resources. 
it's like we're not a monolith. So for me, okay, what's my role here? Like, how do I give back to my community? And the way I can do this is by not using the institution kind of way of thinking to build technology, but to actually challenge the ways that institutions like this, for example, may make technology and how they can support this. So is ultimately at the end of the day, how can these systems support other systems of thinking and ways of making rather than completely destroying either one of them? So I don't mean to be Western centric, but I come from a Western background, which makes my viewpoint to be normally Western centric. So please let me know if this is the wrong question, but getting down to brass tacks, what can most open source projects do today to be more communitarian? Or what can most open source program offices and large enterprises do today to be less dominating and single-minded in their approaches towards building software? How can we better ourselves to be more inclusive? Yeah, this is always kind of a hard one because there's no one way that we can do things. And there are so many ways that we can include communities or people that are have been historically left out. But again, there is one practical way of embracing this, which has to do with redistribution of resources and redistributive justice. So in, in a way, historically speaking, we know that the West has favoritized a lot from whatever happened historically. So how do we start redistributing certain resources to communities so that they can develop their own communitarian ways of technology? So we know that these communities, there are many examples in Latin America where this is happening. So for me, the way I see it and the way I approach this is, what is it that you need from me? And that's it. Because most of the time they know how to approach this. They know how to make things so that it benefits their own communities. It's just kind of like centering them by asking, what do you need from me? And how can I help rather than, this is what I got. And this is useful because of this. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it, it, no, it does make sense. It does make sense. Again, Western-centered focus question here, which makes it a hard question. How do we ask thousands of different communities, what do you need in a way that's fiscally responsible for us as companies? As an open source maintainer, I don't have a lot of time already. How do I go out and ask this question to people without burning myself out? Open source, the way I see it, it's, it works by mostly voluntary contributions mm. and people who want to be a part of this. And there's so many communities, for example, in Mexico and Latin America that are actually actively working on open source projects. So one way of making sure that kind of redistribution also occurs, not only for these communities, but everyone. And I think this is something that I've come to think about a lot on open source is that it's voluntary, but also how do we avoid this kind of extractivism from happening? So could there be companies laying in principles where, because at the end of the day, contribution is a form of giving your knowledge, your time to make this no more voluntary, but also give some sort of contribution in return. I love that. 
So I wanted to mention to our listeners that you are available on the web. There's your Google Scholar account, Yadira Sanchez. If you want to check out to app or not to app, understanding public resistance to COVID-19 digital contact tracing and its criminological reference. That sounds like a real killer. I actually think that does. And there's also your social page for Southampton. Yadira S.XYZ is normally up right now. It is down, but maybe that will be fixed in the future. Is there any yeah. other link that you would like to drop for people? I think that's it. I mean, yes, actually, our Latin American page where we do a lot of cyber and demystifying stuff. So that is a difficult one. Descortizadora hack. They can find us on Instagram where we do a lot of projects that involve communities. Can you spell that for me? Yes, of course. So D-E-S-C-U-A-R-T-I-Z-A-D-O-R-A. Thank you so much. Can you also spell that <laughs> other word that I tried to Google? Techiologist, how do you spell that? Yes. So the first is techio, which is T-E-Q-U-I-O. And then logis, techiologies. So with a Q, not a CH. That was my mistake. That's me <laughs> coming from a Greek background and not Spanish. Yadira, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care. I am joined today by Thomas Frick. Thomas, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. Uh, we have a lot of interesting talks here on the conference, a lot of interesting contacts. And this is really a nice conference. Yeah, it does seem to be really cool. I wish I was there in person. Obviously, it seems like so much fun. Thomas, can you talk to me a bit about what you do at the moment? I'm doing Kubernetes security consulting most of my time. And as a side business, started as a side business supporting companies doing open source. I've created input for the sovereign tech force study of the German government, where they talk about how funding critical infrastructure, security projects and open source, what's missing and so on. So, so Germany has had a lot of really interesting developments so far and recently in terms of digital infrastructure and funding sustainable code. I'd say probably more than any other country. There's the Prototypes Fund, I believe, which is talking yeah. about how to fund things. Is that what you're talking about here or are you talking about something else? No, it's a new form, which is not really uh, finance at the moment. Everybody has confirmed that it will be funded. It's a sovereign tech fund, yep. which is a 10 million a year fund like the Open SSF Foundation. So where you get money to maintain open source code in a way that the security community is happy about it. So we, we are using a lot of code in critical infrastructure. So my main customer is in critical infrastructure running power grids in Germany and all over Europe. So this is something where failure is not an option. So you need to have definitely a, a level of security, which allows you to run anything in a separated environment, but it must be secure and it must be safe because if the power grid fails, uh, some people have a major problem. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing that I mean, right now, in the sense of dependencies upon, say, Russian oil is coming up. So that's right to the forefront of like what's sovereign in the Germany. We don't have to go into that too much. At the moment, we are on a transition and yep. a transition from uh, fossil and nuclear energy to yep. sustainable energy, yep. mostly wind and solar energy. And this means that you need a completely different 
structure of a power grid. So not yeah. central authority anymore, but you have a lot of distributed sources. And this means that you need more control and, and let's say right. changes the security model from protecting the core of your infrastructure to, yes, you have to protect a lot of other devices. So I guess so like my main question is, how do you quantify what open source is critical infrastructure? Like which open source packages or ecosystems? If you see how it's used, for example, if you think yeah, Python is a nice programming language, so anybody else also does, and Python is used for artificial intelligence a lot. Yep. Effectively, you are running 50-year-old Photon code, Numpy or Skype below this, but it, yep. it simply works. And if you are running machine learning in critical infrastructure, this means you are running a lot of Python code. And if you go to the PyP repository, you see a lot of typo squatting attacks. So you see packages with a misspelling and then these people try to get into uh, your infrastructure. And in the beginning, they simply start mining bitcoins or something else. And this means something is happening which is not intended. So you have to protect your infrastructure and against these kind of techs, you want to use the open source ecosystem. But I talked to the maintainer of these packages, 435,000 Python packages yep. done by Ernest Duncan in part time. Yeah. So it's virtually impossible that one person guarantees that these are all beneficial packages. There are we have Python, we have typo squatting attacks. We have a lot of attacks in the ecosystem. Or if you look into the container ecosystem, two thirds of containers on Docker Hub are insecure. So I think you're talking about a few things here. So one of them is attacks, right? Attacks and what's vulnerable. Another one is just insecurities in general. How do you know what could be attacked and so on? I think what I'm really curious about is Beyond thinking about, say, the vulnerability or the security of open source packages, do you know of what work has gone on, say, by the German government, which you're advising on this topic, about what's uh, critical or not? At the moment, they noticed last year that there is a challenge. And yeah. now they are preparing this fund and the German government has changed. So from a conservative to a more greenish government, but the baseline on security is more or less the same. And now the new government is 100 days in charge and they will definitely do something on it. But the final funding is not yet committed from their side. But I think at the moment, under the circumstances, the money will come probably this year. Yeah, I'm curious. I mean, you may know that I'm obviously American and Biden has come out with a, a couple of things, like the White House has come out with a cybersecurity report and they're interested exactly. in trying to understand this as well from the U.S. side. One of the things that I find interesting about Germany is or has been the use of the word sovereign. And sovereign, as far as I'm aware, doesn't mean by Germans for Germans, but more like we need to be independent and able to secure ourselves in the same way as we do with, say, our electrical grid. Is that your understanding as well? The word sovereignty needs to be defined. So the yeah. government, especially the security part of the government, understands something else than you as a citizen. So sovereign as a citizen means you can make a decision. And if the 
government talks about sovereignty, they mostly think they can control the community or something like this. And one part of the story is to tell them, well, the community does not want to be controlled this way. And in the US, sovereign is, has a little bit a right-wing taste, which is so difficult here. It's different in Germany, but the lawyers consulting the government have in mind that they have, uh, it's, it's a kind of autonomy. Mm. And I definitely will get away from using this word. So for me, sovereignty starts with competence. So you need to know what you can do. You need to have a certain level of experience. And as long as you have no experience about what you are doing, you cannot be sovereign in any circumstance. Yeah. I like that definition a lot. Competence first. Competence first coding. And, and the next thing would be if we could replace sovereignty by, let's say, solidarity so that they can really work with the global community, then this all makes sense. So people have been trying to define sovereignty in a friendly way in the open source community. But effectively, it's the same like the word freedom. What, what does freedom mean for me as an individual? And if you want just to drive a car with uh, 300 kilometers per hour in, in Germany, this is also kind of freedom to, in the US, to wear a gun is a completely different mindset of freedom yeah. than we have in free software. So these are dangerous discussions. So everybody uses this word in a different way. So we have to explain it and effectively at the end, we have to replace this uh, wording by something more concrete, more more usable. I like autonomous. I think that's a good word to start from. Autonomy, solidarity, competence, something like that is what we can do. Autonomy has another problem here in Germany because the very, very left wing is using uh, these other autonomous groups. So these sometimes considered a little bit very close to terrorism. So this is not appropriate for the conservatives. So we have definitely autonomous is, in my opinion, a better word, but we have to work with the community and the community needs some competence, governance and things like this. I agree with that. And I think words are always hard, even coming from Germans who are excellent at making words up. Well, not up, but putting that together. It's an old English joke. Moving away from sovereignty and freedom and these like difficult, really semantic arguments about what we're sort of meaning. I want to go back to something you said earlier about 40 year old code packages just working. I agree with that. Like there are some code packages that just work very well. I believe that's what you said. I just want to check in there. Yeah. If you use Python and for machine learning, you probably use NumPy or Skype yep. uh, under the hood. And this means uh, if you look what it uh, comes to, if you do a pip install, you see 50 years old Fortran code popping up. So it's from the 70s. And this means on the code for the supercomputers of the 70s, which are probably not able to put a pixel on your mobile phone in our time. So this code is old, but the code base is very well maintained from universities and it simply works. So you don't have anything better at the moment. You don't need anything better. So what I love about that is that means there's different tranches of packages, which we need to think about when we think about software sustainability and say, shoring up our infrastructure. If there's a package that works incredibly well, you may not need to fund it. I mean, NumPy 50 years ago isn't the same as NumPy now, and NumFocus does a lot of work to maintain those packages and keep them going. But I'm curious what you think about how do you identify what kinds of packages need what level of support? 
you see, if you look, for example, in the lock for uh, J shell, yep. well, yep. well, so we, we had something we did not expect. So act effectively, this is not even a bug in lock for J. Yeah. It's an architectural flaw. So lock for J, I looked it up. So my talk is from 1997 GNDA. So this is more or less a pattern. I download something from elsewhere and execute the code. Yep. Without signing, without authorization, it's just for, I think, a Blu-ray player-like device in the 90s and then simply downloading something and executing it because the players at that time could not really be updated. So, and then this was forgotten and nobody looked into it and somebody in 2016 talked about this on the Black Hat conference and nobody noticed. So that's something... <laughs> Yeah. How this start? And then now at the end of last year, we got a lot of insecurities and these are really in, in severe systems. So I know from hospitals here in Berlin who have abandoned IT departments and there is running Log4j without notion and yeah, they have yeah, draining data to whoever wants this data. Hopefully it's not critical. It's not GPR relevant yeah. data, but it's data which is leaking at the moment. So this, in, in general, we have to design our systems for the case that something fails. And this means for Log4j, you could contain it in another thing that the Log4j application cannot connect other IP addresses and a handful of that. But, but this did not happen in the system engineering where most of the Log4j applications run at the moment. Yeah. Could contain it in, in Kubernetes with network policies, and then you are, have a different level uh, of protection, but you also have a different level of complexity, and maintaining a Kubernetes cluster also is not really easy. It's interesting to me that you said earlier, you know, something like two thirds of Docker containers are insecure. And for me, architecturally, there always may be some zero day insecurity we don't know about. So it could be 100%. I'm not saying it is, but it could be. Going from that, I want to think about long-term sustainability for open source packages. I wonder if there's a way to collectively work. So the U.S. is doing work on cybersecurity in our supply chain, and Germany is doing work on sovereignty and how they understand these things. I wonder if you see a future where we all work together to shore up the ecosystems and make it more sustainable and secure for everyone. Uh, so I just estimated, or if we have now 10 million, which is more or less the same uh, or equivalent to the budget of the open SSF. Yep. And this means we have to share the responsibility. So the open SSF already focuses on open SSL and yep. the low level things. We could focus on different things. Yeah. Let's say set up Apache projects where the Apache members code review each other's project and, and look for this kind of flaws. So this would, would make sense because if in that moment when we had all the money of the world to throw it on open source projects, we would completely run out of developers because how many developers actually are available to do code reviews in foreign projects? And only the community itself can handle this issue. So no external can say, oh, let's scan let's, all the Apache projects for vulnerabilities. This is virtually not possible. So I know that there was a great study done on what is critical infrastructure. I think I was actually part of that study and one of the people who was talked to. What I'm curious about is going forward, do you see a way for developers to be able to raise issues 
to the state or to the $10 million funds to help them out if on an ecosystem uh -huh. level? On the one side, the fund is scouting for projects who yep. need support and help. And on the other way around, you can apply that your project gets support from the fund. So we have both. We have uh, all sizes of communities. We have enterprise-like projects. We have huge projects, yep. projects like Python. And we have one-person projects like Nine Mail, which is run by a single person here in Berlin, mm. which is doing GPG encryption on Android. So this totally makes sense to support them all, but they need a different level of support. So this one developer cannot fill in a hundred pages form. So give me money and <laughs> yeah. send things. We have done this for the European Union, the Fast and Twenty Twenty project, and this is not something a single developer can handle. Yeah. That's fair. I'm really curious about the potential because I know, I mean, 10 million is a lot of money and it's great to have this. I just really want to know what else is coming down the line. Is there anything you're excited uh, about in the next five, 10 years or that you see coming? I see a lot of work coming. Yeah. <laughs> excited is not the real, it's a huge task. And effectively, I talked to members of the industry. So there's an open source group at the German Bitcom, yep. which is a business federation and They like the idea to support the funding and then we would leverage it to one, let's say a hundred million or some even more. But what they want to know is, are we supporting the projects we personally use or mm. what else? And then, yeah, qu next question is, how do you get the projects you are using? Do you have a software bill of materials? So the basics you need for security and license compliance and Then, oh, software, S-Bomb, not really. So I know companies who are doing S-Bombs and they generate 2,000 pages PDFs. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a typical S-Bomb in a medium-sized project. So this means, yeah, you know your, what you are using, generate it automatically, do it, and then scan it for vulnerabilities. Yeah, S-Bombs have come up today before. It's funny, uh, a year ago, they weren't mentioned at all in the circles I run, and now I hear about them quite often. And so it's going to be interesting to see what tooling arises, how we help out, say, Auspos to have S-Bombs, et cetera. Yeah, effectively, uh, to be compliant, if you want to give something out of your company, then S-Bombs are a must. Otherwise, you don't know what you are doing. Yeah. It's for security. You can generate them. The best, uh, what I've seen so far is... The new Epco package generator from Alpine Linux. So the S bombs are generated on the fly if you create a container image. So they repeat. Cool. So the Alpine images are now also packages. And then as a side effect, they generate in a few seconds an S bomb. So this I is the cleanest that. way. Yeah. Then you get it. But not everybody is using Alpine. This is something I really appreciate. Thomas, it's been really great to have you on. I know that you're available on Twitter. For those of you who want to follow Thomas, he's Thomas Frick. That's F-R-I-C-K-E. Thomas, is there any other link or website that you want to point people to while you're here? I have an email address, which is more or less my domain, my name.de. Any mail at thomasfricke.de. So you can send me an email or you find me on LinkedIn if you look for me. Thank you so much. It's been great talking about this. I really hope that the fun goes really well and that we continue to work on sovereignty and just better, more sustainable, more secure code in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right. I really hope you enjoyed that. Once again, this has been a 
Sustain slash Foss backstage interview. If you're interested in talking more about these subjects, you can always check us out on Discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org. That is our website. We have a whole forum. We're just waiting to hear from you. We're also curious about your thoughts in general. So feel free to send us an email at podcast at sustainoss.org or on Twitter at sustainoss. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you take care. 